Hi, I'm Peter Riegert. This is Vocal Heroes, my conversations with bright people for dark times. Please don't tell me that this is a metaphorical. It's not metaphorical. Donald Trump doesn't care if people have to die for him to be elected. That's four-term Congresswoman and author Liz Holtzman. We spoke via Zoom on August 18th, 2020. You grew up in Brooklyn. Were you first generation or were your parents here already? Both of my parents were immigrants. My father's family came for economic opportunity. He came here when he was two years old. My mom's family were refugees from Russia. Where in Russia? In a small town outside of Kiev. They fled pogroms and they fled the communist takeover. So they were fleeing both. And my grandfather led, like Moses in a way, an exodus or an escape of about 70 people. Family? Family, uh, business partners, friends. Wow. As you were growing up, were they a political family? Very. Yeah? (laughs) Very political. First of all, first election for a democratic parliament in uh, Russia. My grandfather made a campaign contribution. I want you to know that (laughs) politics runs deep. But there wasn't an ideological fix because I had a very large extended family. And they read at those times a different newspaper. And so it's what my newspaper said and what my newspaper said and what my newspaper said. That was the conversation when people got together and they disagreed, but they loved each other. Politics was a very, very, very important part of the conversation because people understood that it was a matter really of life or death. So you were hearing the political debates of the time since you were a kid. Yes, and I also lived through descriptions of the pogroms. My grandfather was able to afford to buy a house on a Christian street. That was the only Jewish family living on the Christian street. When they had pogroms, the Jews would flee from the ghetto into my grandfather's house to try to find sanctuary, which my grandfather gave. It was very dangerous, but my mom described those experiences. She described screams that she heard in the streets. There were programs against Jews. They had to live with that. And it was terrifying. Did they notice within America something that was equivalent to pogroms, like lynchings in the South or the Tulsa riots? No. My family was very concerned, obviously, about injustice. Having lived through pogrom in Russia, I can't imagine what their reaction to that must have been. I went down South as a law student. And it was 1963, the year before Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were killed. It was the summer before the bombing of the little girls in Birmingham, Alabama. I don't know how I went down there not understanding, but I didn't understand the depth of the horrors. And when I walked down the street in a teeny little town, rural town, Black people had to get off the sidewalk. It wasn't just two drinking fountains. You couldn't even be in the same piece of real estate. The terror under which blacks lived, enforced by the police system and the system of justice and the local courts, it wasn't just arbitrary terror. It was a system that was enforced at the highest levels. 
when you went down to Georgia, was it to be involved? Yes. There was a white lawyer from Mississippi, Bill Higgs, who came up to Harvard Law School to give a talk. There were three or four people in the room. Not many people were interested in Harvard Law School and civil rights, but I was there. And at the end of the talk, he said, well, why don't you come down south and help? I said, that sounds great. I could be helping in this very important cause. But I had no idea. Did you go to the March on Washington in 63? Yes. I wrote about it in a book who said it would be easy. First chapter is a little bit about my experiences in the South. I came up from what they call Albany. Georgia is spelled Albany, but it's pronounced Albany. Huh. But the people got onto the train. It was almost entirely Black people getting on with such shining eyes, with such hope, with such almost exaltation. It was amazing to be on the train, the sense of hope and excitement and possibility. When Mickey Schwerner was killed and Cheney and Goodman, you were probably Mickey Schwerner's age. 21 and became 22. You must have been a terrific student. You're not going to get into Radcliffe and Harvard just because you want to. Well, I, I did okay. <laughs> and were there quotas back then? There definitely was a quota against women at Harvard Law School. And to show the pervasiveness of the system and how high it went to squelch the civil rights movement. When I got back to Harvard, I wrote an article for the Harvard Law Record. I'm sure you never heard of the Harvard Law Record. Most people in the world have never heard of Harvard Law Record because it's the little newspaper that's put out for Harvard Law students and alumni. Most people don't read it. But I wrote a little article about my experiences in the South. And one of the things I mentioned was that the FBI refused to provide any protection to any of the demonstrators, much less protecting Black people whose civil rights were being destroyed, attacked, challenged every second of every single day. Lo and behold, I get called into the dean's office. I never got called into the dean's office ever in my whole life. I said, what did I do now? <laughs> and the dean said to me, you wrote this article? I said, yes. He said, have you seen the most recent Harvard Law Record? I said, no, because I never read it. He said, well, there's a letter in here from J. Edgar Hoover attacking you. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Second year student at Harvard Law School attracts a letter attacking me for daring to challenge the FBI's refusal to protect civil rights workers in the South. So he said, you have to answer this. Luckily, J. Edgar Hoover wasn't that smart, and he didn't get his facts right. So it was really easy to devastate his letter. I never heard anything again from him, but I was sure I would never become a lawyer, that I'd never pass the character committee. But somehow, I made it through. They were wiretapping Martin Luther King. For sure, they were wiretapping me. <laughs> but just to show you how the tentacles went out there, the director of the FBI wrote a letter about me, <laughs> a tiny young law student in this obscure little newspaper, because the FBI could not be challenged on civil rights. When you went to Radcliffe originally, did you have an instinct that you were going to be a lawyer? No, oh, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't even want to be a lawyer when I went to Harvard Law School. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there I was. And my dad was a lawyer, so I guess it kind of was in the blood somehow. 
I'll tell you what happened to me in Georgia. There were a bunch of us from Harvard Law School, a bunch, I mean, four or five of us went down. We had been invited down by this civil rights lawyer from Mississippi. He said they'd make arrangements for us. We'd have a job, I don't know, 20 bucks a week or 20 bucks a month, something, whatever. I didn't care about that. It was not a munificent amount of money. And we got to SNCC headquarters in Atlanta, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and they never heard of us. They weren't ready for us. And they said, we can't help you here. Why don't you go to Montgomery, Alabama, where there's a bunch of lawyers who are meeting because of this circuit court. I wound up in Albany, Georgia, with this civil rights attorney, very distinguished man. And he had already a guy from Berkeley Law School, white law clerk. And they saw a white woman, and the two of them must have exchanged some kind of deep mind communication. (laughs) For a white woman to be with a black man overtly and publicly in the South was extremely dangerous, particularly for the black man, but also for the white woman. And that was going to be a hindrance to them and maybe even a threat to them unintentionally. So they said, how are we going to get rid of her? They told me every single story of violence against civil rights workers and against Blacks. First, they started with the violence in Albany. That wasn't good enough, so then they went to every place in Georgia. I was shaking when they finished telling me what was happening. That night, because it was so dangerous, you couldn't stay in the white part of town. You couldn't stay in a normal hotel, motel, or anything like that. It was too dangerous. You had to stay in home. And they had put me up with a woman bare wooden floor. It was immaculate house, but very poor. I said, what have I gotten myself into? I'm going to be on the next plane to LaGuardia tomorrow morning. When I got into the house, a woman, she sat me in a rocking chair. She said, would you like a cup of tea? And she said, are you okay? I said, everything's fine. I mean, (laughs) dying inside. And I had a cup of tea and we were talking about this and that. And as we were talking, I realized that yes, I could be on the next plane to LaGuardia tomorrow morning, but she could never leave there. And so I showed up the next morning. We were all good friends, the lawyers and I. It remained terrifying all the way through. I never would have had the courage to go down if I'd had any idea. How long were you down there? For the summer till the March on Washington. That fall, when I had to go back to school, I'd had the benefit of that experience in Georgia. It was really critical to bring law students down. A number of us got together and formed a civil rights organization called the Law Student Civil Rights Research Organization, the purpose of which was to bring law students from the North to the South so that they would be a force for change. We brought down 40 lawyers the first summer, and then it got bigger, 80, hundreds. And you passed the bar in 66. Then you got a job with a pretty prestigious New York City law firm. Well, it was only prestigious after I left it. (laughs) It was a very small firm. When I started, nobody had ever heard of it. Women didn't have an easy job of getting into law firms at that time. I'll bet. Were there role models that you looked at in the culture? No. So you were inventing yourself. I had a role model. I shouldn't say no role model. I had one role model, my grandfather. He was really courageous because... He let Jews come into his house during pogroms. And my mom said, why are you doing this? All of our lives are at risk. And he said, because it's the right thing to do. And that to me is maybe the strongest example I have of the importance of doing the right thing. It's almost like a seed that was planted in you. I'm loath to call it a gene, but 
Maybe it's a gene. That's pretty intense. 1966, you're in this law firm and you're going to run for Congress in 1972. Did you have an inkling about running for office? Never. I wanted to get back into the civil rights movement in some way. I was invited to come and work for John Lindsay, who was mayor of New York City in 1966. I didn't know very much about him, but I thought it might be an exciting possibility. And that was my first real exposure to politics. I thought you had to have some special expertise. There's a French say, je ne sais quoi, some special quality. But I saw these people up close, ordinary people. And I said, I could do as good a job as they. If they can get elected, I can get elected. That's so great. When I started, I would go constantly to off-off-Broadway theater. If I was going to get a start, it was going to be there. (laughs) And I had almost the exact reaction. I'd look at the plays, and I had the same thought. I don't know if I have any talent, but I could do that. And it sounds like what you noticed in and around city government. So you're going to run, and your district, you were living in the 16th at the time? It's hard to say because there was a redistricting that year, but I moved back to Brooklyn, my parents' house, and they carved that house out of the district. Oh, my God. (laughs) So that they could say I didn't live in the district. But of course, you know who, my opponent, he lived about three or four miles away. I lived outside by a block. Here you are. The primary is in June of 72. Emanuel Seller was, I think, 50 years in Congress. The most senior member of Congress, he set a record. But I had actually run for the position of Democratic State Committee woman as a reform candidate in 1970. Before you even got to Seller. Right. That's when I decided to enter politics. This was the only position I thought I could win in. My parents' house was in that district. I think I was the first person to beat the Brooklyn Democratic machine. In those days, to make sure that the machine continued its control, incumbents were first on the ballot. It's quite clear that the first position on the ballot is the one that's going to get the most votes, particularly if you don't know anything about the candidates. So we brought a lawsuit against the Board of Elections to challenge the constitutionality of that. I love the name of it, Holtzman Against Power. Power lost. (laughs) What was the job you won before you ran against Emanuel Seller? That was it, Democratic State Committee woman. He was the congressman for the district. There were two things. One, he was never there. He was never at a community meeting. You never saw him. Secondly, there was a war going on. I was very much involved in the anti-war movement, but he was a big advocate for the war. He was a Johnson supporter. Yes. He also had major contributions from profiteers, construction companies and others who were making billions from the war. I hadn't paid any attention to him, except I realized he's not around. It must have been in November of 1971. A neighbor said to me, I was walking home from voting, what's that old guy doing on the ballot? <laughs> she had just voted too. I said, who are you talking about? She said, Emanuel Seller. I said, I don't know what he's still doing on the ballot. (laughs) Well, then I started to take a look and I said, hmm, he shouldn't be on the ballot. He actually turned out to have a double door law practice. If you had federal business, you went in one door. And if you had non-federal business, you went into another door. (laughs) So nobody gave me a chance of winning. Going back to your Georgia experience, And listening to stories about what your grandfather did, all this early exposure, these are the stories that fascinate me because the concept of vocal heroes, that's my interest. 
people's lives and finding your voice. November of 71, you made your decision, I'm going to run against Zeller. I don't know if I made the decision at that point, but that election day, I said, oh, well, wait a minute, we should take a look at this. I listened to a wonderful interview you did with the Nixon Library, 2007, I think. Right. That must have been so weird. I thought that they would be Nixon supporters, but apparently not. There was a person who was a scholar who was an objective person. I found an amazing fact that came out of that interview. The primary, when you defeated Emanuel Seller, was sometime around the break-in of the Watergate. Correct. As I understand it, at the same time Watergate was being broken into, your office was broken into. Correct. Campaign office. Thugs came in, beat up the people in the office, and left. I don't know who was behind it. My campaign manager was there. He was taken to the hospital. I wasn't paying attention to Watergate. I was paying attention to my own campaign and the safety of my campaign workers. It was crazy. The link between a pogrom in Russia and these tactics, that's part of a pogrom. Once you beat Seller, I know that he challenged you and that took a while. You must have realized, I'm going to Congress. What did that feel like? After you've been in the South, (laughs) the chief of police of Albany, Georgia, could have come after you and killed you. After that, I mean, being in Congress, (laughs) I didn't expect it to be easy, but I wasn't worried. I was very worried when I was elected because the machine was going to come after me. I knew that. I knew that if they were coming after me, I'd have to raise a lot of money. I didn't know where that was going to come from. My parents weren't rich. I hadn't worked long enough to make any money. Maybe they had let their guard down. They didn't think Seller could be beaten. The New York Post called me Wispy Challenger. So (laughs) (laughs) they did put up a third-party candidate to siphon off some votes from me. I won by 635 votes. I would have won by a landslide if they hadn't put up a third-party candidate. Nothing has changed. Trump is trying to figure out third parties to run. No, of course. Seller challenged the results because it was only 625 votes. That was his thinking. 35. (laughs) You know, it was a little bit like the South in Brooklyn, except it wasn't aimed at blacks. It was aimed at controlling power. The Democratic machine controlled the courts. They thought they could win. They claimed that they were voting irregularities. Of course, they controlled the whole voting apparatus. But we put up such a good case. We had the chair of the mathematics department of Columbia University (laughs) come and testify in Brooklyn that even If every one of those irregularities had voted for Seller, the chances that that would have affected the outcome of the race were less than all of the grains of sand on all the beaches in every country of the whole world. Oh, wow. And I think the judge in Brooklyn got that. (laughs) We we actually won the case. We never should have. (laughs) But the testimony was really overwhelming. They weren't prepared for it. Of course, the other side, they just figured they were going to win because they controlled the courts. I was too nervous to go to the courthouse and listen, but we won. If you're in power for 50 years, you're not going to give it up that easy as we're watching now. I mean, Correct. power never does, but it's a done deal. You're going to Congress and your class was the uh, 93rd Congress. There were only 16 women. The current Congress has 102. There's still more to go. 
I've created a record as the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, something I didn't know when I ran for office. Elise Stefanik, a Republican from upstate New York, broke the record. Right. And then AOC broke that record. But I have to say, not only did we have no money, but when I was running for Congress, we had no major organizations behind us. Only the people in my district, really a tough race. We were inventing the wheel. I was told by the law firm I was working with that I couldn't stay there if I ran against Seller. I lost my job, so I had full time to campaign. Being a woman was actually somewhat of an advantage because people noticed you. It was not often that you saw a woman out campaigning for Congress. And I was doing it every single day. In terms of my theme of voices, I was raised in a political family. Watching politics and Congress in general, you break out of 435 people and have a voice. Of the 38 members in the Judiciary Committee, there's only two women, you and Barbara Jordan. First in history. And as I think I understand it, you didn't want to be on that committee. Correct. Seller had been chair of the House Judiciary Committee for 50 years. I thought it'd be a good idea to try some different approach. I went down to Washington and I lobbied. And they put me on the House Judiciary Committee, and I was a little bit disheartened. This is not a very auspicious beginning. This is my first trying to get something done in Congress, and I lose. And then I'm thrust in the middle of history. So sometimes you have to be able to make an omelet out of a broken egg. The idea that we have control over the choices we make, it's a young person's conceit. And I think you might have intimated Had Watergate already been going on, you never would have been put on that committee. Absolutely. If the powers that be in the House of Representatives had any idea that there would be impeachment in November 1972, I'd never be put on the House Judiciary Committee because I'm just some nobody from Brooklyn. They thought, well, it's a good place for her. We have a vacancy. She'll just take it and we don't have to worry about it. The House Judiciary Committee was basically looked at as a committee that kept the Constitution from being amended in all of these wacko ways. There was a constitutional amendment every day on some other issue, and they wanted members who could stand up against it. And beyond that, they didn't really care. It just shows how far away from anybody's thinking impeachment was in 1972. Nixon was elected in one of the biggest landslides. As a student of history and a lover of the drama of life, that you and Barbara (laughs) Jordan, a black woman from Texas, are put together in this committee. Did you recognize early what a force she was? We obviously were friendly, but she came from a somewhat different background. She was a protege of Lyndon Johnson's. Wow. She had been already recognized by the powers that be in Texas. She already had some political experience and I had never done anything like this before. She had an amazing voice, both literally speaking and metaphorically speaking, and the speech she gave was hugely important. Did you get to give opening remarks? Everyone did. Was there any pressure you were getting from Democrats or Republicans in terms of what your job was? No, the interesting thing, and people can't imagine it today, I was never lobbied about my vote on the committee. And when we started, impeachment hadn't been done for 100 years. Andrew Johnson, nobody exactly knew how it was going to work. I don't believe anybody had any idea whether there would be a case for impeachment. 
whether we would have the votes in the House Judiciary Committee. They just knew that the President of the United States was such a threat. They weren't doing nose counting. They were doing it the right way. And that's a very different approach from now. I had written a book about impeaching George Bush because he got us into the war in Iraq on the basis of lies and deceit. (laughs) That's an impeachable offense, clearly. And I remember talking to people in the House of Representatives about that, and they said, oh, Liz, we don't have the votes in the Senate. I said, what are you talking about? During the Nixon impeachment, we didn't even know if we had the votes on the committee, much less the House, much less the Senate. It happened because we were able to present it in the right way, in a fair way, in a bipartisan way to the American people. It's a very different situation now. Rodino chose two Republican lawyers. The chair of the House Judiciary Committee knew he had to get Republican votes. What happened then was much less partisan and much more, in a way, strategic. He knew that impeachment would not happen unless there was some support from Republicans. So he reached out. I later found out first that he wanted to appoint some crony lawyer from New Jersey in charge of impeachment. And he was told, no, that's not going to work. So then he said, okay, find me a Republican. That was a brilliant strategic move on his part. The first important signal he was sending to the Republicans on the committee was that this is not going to be a railroad job, not going to be partisan. This is going to be on a basis of fact. He picked John Doerr, a very famous figure in the civil rights movement. So we had a Republican council, and the Republicans had a Republican council. There were two Republicans running the committee. But in the end, the staff was basically an integrated staff. Everybody was working on everything together. Rodino was exquisitely attuned to bringing the Republicans along. He avoided issues that could have arisen over procedural matters. He didn't want those things to get people angry. He wanted them to focus on the facts. Ultimately, we had seven Republicans. Seven out of 17. It's a little less than half, but that's a lot. 30 or 40 percent of the Republicans. But it was enough to show the country that this wasn't a Democratic coup overturning the outcome of an election. Some of us, I was myself, a little edgy about accommodating the Republicans in this way. But I think it was brilliance on his part. That's why it was so successful. The thing that's extraordinary, somebody was saying, we don't have the votes in the Senate. Let's leap ahead. You don't have the votes with regards to Trump, but that the Senate wouldn't even call witnesses or documents in a trial. That seems like out of Orwell. A lot of the reaction from the right was that this is, like you said, a coup attempt to get rid of a democratically elected president who lost the election by three million votes, I should add. Does this seem to you more frightening than the Nixon situation? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, the Nixon situation was very frightening. Remember, We think of Watergate as involving only the break-in and the cover-up. That itself was serious enough. But that's just an umbrella for a whole spectrum of abuses of power that Nixon engaged in. Look at war-making powers, bombing Cambodia, despite the fact that Congress had ruled that you can't do it. Yes, Trump is building a wall, despite Congress saying, no, you can't build a wall. Nixon bombed Cambodia killing people, threatening American lives in contradiction to the law of Congress. Yeah, we have a president here who 
has contempt for the Constitution, but don't think that Nixon didn't do similar things, in some cases even worse. Now, did Nixon tamper with voting? That never came to our attention, but don't think that it was beyond him. Don't think any of the things that Trump is doing would have been beyond him. Sicking the IRS on political opponents. I'm on the House Judiciary Committee, and all of a sudden, I, who had been working for two months or a month and a half, so you can imagine what my income was at that point, was audited in the year 1972. Not only was I audited, we had almost nothing in the campaign. The campaign was audited, and my chief of staff was audited. Uh, really? Isn't that kind of like an extraordinary coincidence? Does that just happen out of the blue? If J. Edgar Hoover could find you in college. <laughs> Law school. <laughs> he was doing that kind of thing. He had illegal wiretaps going on journalists and others. Sometimes we just minimize the horror of what Nixon did and the threat that he posed to our society and our democracy. Trump is doing his best to equal, if not exceed. They both were threats. The sad thing is we seem to have no way of dealing with Trump's threat now. He seems to have been emboldened by the impeachment process. And the Senate, instead of acting as an independent branch, just was a toady, a poodle. It was horrifying to see that. Could it have been handled a different way? That's going to require some careful thought. Maybe if the Democrats had acted in a different way, it could have been different. I don't know. But clearly the lessons of what we did in impeachment of Nixon, which did work, the bipartisanship from the get-go, in small ways as well as big ways, was something that I think helped to bring Republicans along, which was vital to the result. American history is loaded with stories about how the government works, who was fighting. Where do you think the acrimony came from? They're at each other's throats. People don't even talk to each other. Here you were on this committee. They didn't look at you like you were a monster. You were a colleague. Two women were on this committee, like you said, first time ever. Even as I remember watching Watergate, when the Republicans were cross-examining, there seemed to be some sense of collegiality. This is our job. I totally disagree with you. It seems now that there's almost no ability for conversation. And that seems to be what Trump is provoking. It's the chaos that he lives off of. I'm not in Congress now. So no, I no, I know. I just To the attitudes. But I can just say that when I left Congress in 1980, by that time, it had been more or less collegial, not personalized, not mean, not vicious. By the time I left, there were one or two people who fit that bill. They were extreme right wing. They were personal in their responses to members they disagreed with, personal in their attacks. It's horrifying to see the reaction of the Republicans both on the committee in the Trump impeachment and in the Senate. It's a very sad state for our country because what Trump has done, you have to undo that. And then to educate many Americans who don't understand that what his behavior is, is just so anti-democratic and such a threat. I saw a little bit of your testimony during the Clinton impeachment. If my memory serves me correctly, you were there to say look, I'm not here to approve the president's behavior, but this does not remotely come right. up to the standards of high crimes and misdemeanors. But did you have a collegial relationship to somebody like Henry Hyde, who was the chairman? Actually, I did. I disagree with him vehemently on oh, yeah. abortion. 
I think I was running for the Senate in 1980. He once came up to me and said, you'd be a really good senator. I was floored. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing he said. We never were friends. I didn't consider him a friend, but I was actually appalled at how he handled the Clinton impeachment because I thought he was smarter than that and that he understood. Congress can abuse its power also. You have to remove somebody who abuses the power of his office. Donald Trump is trying to stop people from voting. That's an abuse of the power of his office. The failure to protect our voting process from outside interference is an abuse of the power of his office. Trump is engaged in impeachable offenses up and down the line. Daily. Every second, misuse of the powers of his office. That's not what we had with regard to Clinton. And that's not to say that his behavior wasn't abusive or improper or stupid, all of the above, but what he did was not an impeachable offense. It's very sad that that distinction doesn't seem to have really been made. Something happened after Nixon left. It never came to a vote. And then Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon and I believe in some kind of dramatic way, volunteered to come down and talk to the House. And you were the only one who challenged that pardon. Right. That's pretty extraordinary. All of a sudden, Nixon resigns. And by the way, in retrospect, it wasn't for his good. He resigned because the Republicans in the Senate. And why did they pressure him? Because look at the timetable. We had voted at the end of July in 1974. In November 1974, there was going to be midterm elections, senators who were up and members of Congress who were up. If we had gone forward with impeachment, the trial would probably have taken place in September going into October. What do you think the result would have been for the Republican Party in November at that election? They would have been decimated as it was. We had the Watergate babies, many, many who were elected as a result of that. Just imagine if you had a trial going on They had to get him at it. But the fact of the matter is that here is Ford issuing a pardon in a way that raised a lot of questions. First of all, he never talked to the special prosecutor about the consequences for trial. Remember, Nixon's top aides were going on trial. If the chief honcho who orders all this illegality goes free and the small friar being prosecuted, that was one problem. He gave all of Nixon's papers to Nixon. That meant we could never create the full historical record that we needed. The accompanying actions to his pardon suggested cover-up, okay? When the pardon was first issued, Bella Abzug introduced and many others introduced resolutions of inquiry to require answers by the administration about why the pardon was issued. To head off those resolutions, the subcommittee I was on have an inquiry into what's going on. And that's when Ford said he would go down and testify. We had caucus beforehand. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? Because I had been a lawyer. I said, well, you can't just have a major witness come down, the president of the United States, and not prepare for it. We should investigate or question the people who are involved in the pardon, find out what happened, request documents, and then we'll talk to the president or question him. And it's normal operating procedure. I mean, I've done that enough times and done that enough cases. <laughs> and they said to me in the subcommittee caucuses, Liz, you're absolutely right. That's a great idea. We're going to do it. Guess what? They never interviewed anybody who was involved in the process. They never requested a single document. They never wanted to know what happened. 
They wanted Ford to come down. They were giving him a platform to say how kind and wonderful he was and merciful and caring and blah, blah, blah. That was it. But I wasn't in on this plan. Nobody told me. So I'm still trying to get the documents and getting witness questions. And then finally I realized that's not going to happen. So I said, you know, maybe nobody's going to ask him the tough questions that have to be asked. I better get those questions ready. And then I realized also because of the five-minute rule, if I didn't ask all the questions, he would filibuster. So I raised all the questions that were obvious questions, some of the ones I raised with you, including whether there was a deal over the pardon. And I was the last person to ask questions on the subcommittee. I was the lowest in seniority. And I'm praying that somebody asks the question first because to confront the president of the United States. I was only 31 years old. I was just a brand new member of Congress. <laughs> Who was I to ask this? I kind of had the suspicion that that might be the case. So when he came, I was ready with the questions. I had no idea whether I would lose my office, but I knew it was the right thing to do. I was well, comfortable asking those questions. And Ford then said, oh, there was no deal. And he went on to filibuster. He never answered the other questions. And they've never really been answered to this day. I knew it was the right thing to do, a phrase that you used before. That's exactly what your grandfather said about bringing 60 people into his home. That's a pretty good connection. Were your folks alive, by the way? Oh, yes. What did they say that you, the child of immigrants who escaped pogroms, was cross-examining the most powerful man in the world? They must have just had their minds blown. My parents were very proud to be Americans and very glad that this country gave sanctuary, that their daughter could rise to these heights. My mom and my twin brother came to the vote on impeachment, and I kept thinking, I'm sitting here, the daughter of immigrants, and here I am voting on whether a president of the United States should be removed from power. And it was a very heady feeling. But on the pardon, by that time, I was a little bit more savvy, having gone through the impeachment vote, about the consequences. And I knew that if you were going to question the president of the United States and directly confront him with whether there was going to be a deal about the pardon, that could have enormous consequences. At that point, I really knew. I see was at risk, but... They would have run somebody against you and get you out of that Congress. Right. That's what I thought, because there were no polls about this. I had no idea what the reaction was going to be. In a way, I learned what was really dangerous. I was in the South, so I saw the horror of it. In the end, I was just going to lose a seat. I read a book by Solzhenitsyn called The First Circle. It's about personal freedom. Somebody who's arrested and put in the gulag by the Soviet authorities, and they have to rat on their colleagues who are also prisoners. And if they do that, they get a little more food and they get a little warmer room and life is easier for them. The protagonist of the book doesn't go along with that. He says, I'm ready to give these things up. If you're ready to give up the glory, the material possessions, you're a free person. Yeah. And if you're not, then you have a price. Someone's going to find it. And then you're never going to ask the tough questions. You wrote two books, right? Three books. No, actually four. Who said it would be easy? Sort of a memoir. Then there's Cheating Justice, which is about how Bush should have been prosecuted, the ordering of torture and wasn't. Then I wrote a book about the impeachment of George W. Bush. And then I wrote a book about impeaching Donald Trump. Four books. 
Let me go back to one other thing, which I think you addressed in that Nixon Museum interview, and you were really clear and outspoken about it, that the idea that the press was perpetuating and the government was suggesting was that this pardon was going to bring the people back together again. And your argument was, no, no, the impeachment of the president and his resignation is what brought the country together. The pardon brought us apart. Am I getting that right? Most of it right. I think the impeachment brought us together as a country because it made us recognize that more important than a president, a party, was our constitution and the rule of law. And most Americans agreed with that. It kind of reaffirmed who we were, not just in our own minds, but we understood that most Americans felt the way we did. We wanted a country that was governed by the rule of law. The pardon was partisan. Ultimately, Gerald Ford lost his election effort because of the pardon. And the pardon was, in a way, very divisive. And the second thing is, of course, the way in which it was done, designed to cover up Nixon's misdeeds. But there were a lot of people who bought into this idea that somehow being merciful is what brings people together. I don't think that that was correct. What brings people together is that we share a set of common values. And that's what the impeachment process told us. And today, I mean, nobody criticizes the House Judiciary Committee during the Nixon impeachment because the process was patently fair and bipartisan. One of the symbols of this most recent era was the murder or even lynching of George Floyd, which to me represents symbolically the destruction of a voice. This era reminds me of what it was like back in the 50s and 60s. You know from your civil rights experience, something is happening, and I think there is a revived look by the culture to deal with these profound questions. Do you have a sense of that? Yes. Donald Trump and his behavior and the police behavior has forced many Americans to realize that we haven't finished the job of dealing with slavery and racism in this society. Far from it. Much more that needs to be done. It was all pushed under the rug or not addressed or addressed piecemeal. It's shocking and horrifying. This still might be going on, the police brutality, if we didn't have cell phones with cameras in them. That's really what's made the difference. When I was DA, I created, and it might have been the first in the country, a special unit in my office to deal with the misuse of force by law enforcement. I had 5,000 cops picketing me. And you were the first woman DA in New York? Yes, in New York City. And when I left the DA's office, my successor disbanded that unit. One person can't do it. I tried to make that change. I could not make that change. Right. It wouldn't last. Somebody else came and undid it because the forces for racism, the forces of bigotry, the forces of placating powerful institutions are too strong. The courage isn't there. But what's happened now with Black Lives Matter and with the women's movement, I'm hoping that that will create a permanent opportunity for change. And it's the voices, definitely. And it's young people, definitely. Young people made the change in the civil rights movement. Young people were the ones who led the anti-war effort. And young people will make this change. At moments like this, 
I always wish my parents were here because I'd love to say to them, can you believe that we're going through this crap again? And of course, they went through plenty of stuff in their own lives. You know, that march in Charlottesville, my God, (laughs) that was out of a pogrom playbook. Right. It's shocking to see President of the United States playing footsie with Nazis, neo-Nazis, would-be Nazis, KKK, all of their allies in evil, and not only here, but around the world. Steve Bannon and his buddies were trying to help elect Marine Le Pen in France. Putin, who's trying to interfere with our elections, is a force for fascism in Europe. We're really under threat in a very serious way. And who would have thought that the institutions of democracy that we've created are so fragile? But they are. The laws were written with all kinds of loopholes because you have to allow for possibility that you haven't envisioned everything. So not every law can be totally airtight. Donald Trump has found every single loophole. You would not have imagined that he could poison so many parts of the government. The census, the voting, immigration, taking an axe to the Statue of Liberty. Who would have ever thought that? My mom wouldn't be here if we closed the door on refugees. My understanding of Donald Trump growing up in New York City and watching this idiot for 50 years is that's what he meant when he said, I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. He's gotten away with murder in the cliche sense. He basically has been metaphorically saying to people, what are you going to do about it? Not in the cliche sense, in the real sense. What he has done with regard to COVID, I haven't checked the statutes, but there's reckless indifference is a murder statute in New York State. He has refused to deal with COVID in a way that will help people. It's just to get his reelection accomplished, open things up, let people die. Who cares? That's the way it is. The biggest, most powerful nation in the world militarily, we're doing the worst of large and developed countries in terms of how we handle this. The death rate, the testing, the failure to have equipment. Please don't tell me that this is metaphorical. It's not metaphorical. Donald Trump doesn't care if people have to die for him to be elected. Not one person. It's tens of thousands of people. I totally agree with you. I didn't mean to suggest that he wasn't doing anything horrible. If his actions were in another country, he would be up for crimes against humanity. Apropos of the pardon of Ford, we don't seem to want to hold people accountable. There's a whole list of things that have to change after this. There needs to be a constitutional amendment changing the pardon power so no president can pardon anybody involved with his campaign or his staff or his family. And no succeeding president can pardon the prior president and make a president ineligible for a pardon. All of these things have to be done because Trump has exposed the vulnerabilities in our democracy, and he's used them to advance a horrific, evil agenda. I could ask you questions for hours and hours <laughs> because you are. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm really flattered that you gave me so much time. You fit the description of a vocal hero. And the fact that I got to chat with you and be corrected by you <laughs> is a really extraordinary gift. I can't thank you enough thank just you. for your life. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the questioning. Thanks. It was fun.
Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Vocal Heroes is brought to you by Two Tequila Productions. Lila Newman is our editor and audio producer. Cornelia Reed is the producer. Sound recording is by Mark Solomon. Mary Edith Burrell is the creative consultant. And Derek Burroughs built our website, VocalHeroes.com. Thanks to Andy Kubachevsky and Amygdala Music for the theme. Special thanks to Leslie Rossman, Jonathan Silvers, James Frazee, Robin Erdang, and Freya Reed. For more, visit VocalHeroes.com. I'm Peter Riegert. Thanks for listening.